to my little friend. Folks, welcome to episode 46 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, just a wee podcast that looks at interesting stuff in philosophy, theology, biblical studies, social issues, and quite frankly, whatever else I feel like, because I'm the boss and I can do whatever I want. I am your host, Glenn Peoples. Well, episode 46 is called The Non-Moral Goodness of God. And it's based on a talk that I gave at the Australasian Philosophy of Religion Association conference uh, up in Auckland in July 2011, which in turn was developed into a talk that I recently gave uh, to the LA branch of Reasonable Faith, and now I give it to you. I'd like this episode to do two things, really. Firstly, to serve as a very friendly criticism of a line of argument used in modern apologetics, I suppose you'd call it, on behalf of Christian theism involving an appeal to God's goodness. And it really is meant to be a friendly criticism because on the whole, I agree with the, the my fellow theists and Christians in particular that I'm going to be talking about who argue that God in some really important way is the basis of morality. And the criticism that I offer will, will be on the details of how this case is made. And on a more positive note, I want to persuade people, to persuade you to adopt my way of thinking about divine goodness and my way of expressing those thoughts. I want to explain why I think that it's best not to think of God as being essentially moral. In fact, never mind essentially moral, uh, why it's best not to think of God as moral at all. And that when we call God good, we should think of this goodness as purely non-moral. I think that following this advice keeps our thinking much clearer as far as God and morality goes, and it avoids potential misunderstandings as well in an apologetics context. Some people, hopefully quite a few, I know at least some, uh, will already agree with this pair of claims that I make. And if I'm successful, then thanks to this podcast, then I will be increasing their number somewhat. So this part of what I have to say is not just about philosophy of religion, but also about apologetics strategy. Secondly, I want to explain how the confusion of the moral and non-moral in terms of goodness has contributed to arguments against theologically grounded ethics and how, by maintaining this distinction with clarity, we can defuse at least some of those arguments and expose them as cases of, of maybe equivocation or perhaps misrepresentation. So that's what I want to do. Now let's do it. Just a little bit of background. As listeners to the podcast will probably already know, I tentatively hold, less tentatively these days, to a divine command theory of morality. So when I talk about morality, I'm talking about duty. I think the morally good thing to do is that which God commands us to do. 
and the immoral thing to do is that which God commands us to abstain from. So by calling it morally good, I'm saying it's required of us. Now I've become convinced that some people who defend a divine command theory of morality have actually weakened their position when trying to avoid the problem of arbitrariness. Now, what's that? Well, this problem is sometimes presented in terms of horrendous commands. We've got, all of us have got certain intuitions about morality. And so any moral theory that clearly violates those intuitions will be less believable as a result of that violation, will be less attracted to it. Now, if morality is grounded in God's will or commands alone, as I say it is, then what God decides to command is not bound by moral rules, so this objection goes, it must be arbitrary, and in theory, God could command things like murder, rape, or torture, you know, terrible stuff, and it would be the right thing to do. Now, that jars with us, that intuitively seems to most people to be just obviously wrong, and so they conclude morality could not be grounded in God's commands after all. Oh, really? Here's where we've got to ask a question. Does God have a moral nature? Why am I asking that question? Well, because here, as soon as this objection arises, here is where the apologist often appeals to God's nature, arguing that God's commands, or maybe just morality itself, are grounded in God's nature. And this is the focus of this talk. This is where I want to draw our full attention. Here's the important question. What is it about God's nature that enables us to appeal to it and by appealing to it to do away with or to address the problem of arbitrariness, the problem of horrendous commands? What's the deal here? Well, here's one example of someone who makes this appeal. Paul Chamberlain, in his stimulating and enjoyable but popular level dialogue. And that I, I, I pause because I, I don't want to make it sound like that's a bad thing. It's not. It's meant for a popular audience so they will understand the issue. The book is called Can We Be Good Without God? And in this book, uh, Paul Chamberlain expresses this appeal via his character, Ted. Ted is kind of like the speaker who expresses the author's own view, uh, much like the character Socrates often expresses Plato's own view. Ted succinctly describes how God could explain the existence of moral facts as follows. And I quote, My explanation begins with God, who is the creator of the universe and who is also a moral being. In his nature is a sense of right and wrong. It is part of what and who he is. Furthermore, he is immutable. He cannot change to be anything other than what he now is. I then assert that this moral creator, God, infused his moral knowledge into the minds of the people he created. End quote. To speak this way is to say that God has an innate knowledge of morality. God knows what is right and wrong, and God passes his own knowledge of right and wrong onto us. Now, because I think that the commands of God are the locus of moral rightness and wrongness, I don't think that God has any moral duties. Although God may have any number of motivations for acting or commanding as he does, the desire or the inclination to fulfill the demands of morality is not and cannot be one of those motivations because it's only the commands of God 
that give moral quality to acts or to decisions. And so it's impossible for God to be, as Chamberlain calls God, a moral being. That is, a person who lives in accordance with morality, which I take to be about duty. Prior to God commanding that we act in a certain way, God has no knowledge of moral rightness and wrongness because there's no such thing as moral rightness or wrongness independent of God's commands. And for that reason, we shouldn't say, as William Lane Craig does, that, quote, God's moral nature is expressed in relation to us in the form of divine commands which constitute our moral duties or obligations, end quote. It may well be true that God's nature is expressed to us in what he commands. I think that is true. But that nature is not moral because morality is bound up with the concept of duty and God has no duties. Craig, I call him Craig, it sounds like that's his first name. No, I mean William Lane Craig. We refer to each other by last name in in the scholarly world apparently. Craig uses the language of morality elsewhere to describe God's commands, saying that God only commands things if God has a, quote, morally sufficient reason, end quote, to command them. But this can't be so if moral properties are either brought about by God's commands or identical with the property of being commanded or prohibited by God. To illustrate that this is not an isolated case of how Christians think about God and morality, Let's look at one further example, this time from the eminent British philosopher of religion, Richard Swinburne. I'll quote from him. He says, In claiming that God is by nature perfectly morally good, I suggest that the theist be interpreted as claiming that God is so constituted that he always does the morally best action when there is one, and no morally bad action. For God, as for us... There is often no one best action, but a choice of equal best actions, only one of which can be done. Perfect moral goodness includes doing both the obligatory and the supererogatory, and doing nothing wrong or bad in other ways. Perfect moral goodness surely involves fulfilling one's moral obligations. End quote. Now, Of course, I agree that moral goodness does involve fulfilling one's moral obligation, doing one's duty. In fact, to keep things as clear as possible and to avoid confusing morality with things other than morality, I say that's exactly what moral goodness is, fulfilling one's moral obligations. In Swinburne's case, however, there is at least some consistency here, even though I think he's wrong, because Swinburne believes that the moral argument for theism lacks force, and he rejects a divine command theory of ethics. To illustrate that not only is this view of God and morality common, but it presents those who reject Christian faith and traditional theism with an opportunity to undermine the claim that morality starts with God's commands, and perhaps that morality even starts with God, even if that attempt can be answered and then fought over, I give you atheist philosopher of religion William Rowe, who observes, and I quote, Since God is unsurpassably good, now he doesn't think God is like this, he doesn't think there is a God, but he's describing what Christians believe when they talk about God. Since God is unsurpassably good, he has all the features that unsurpassable goodness implies. Among these is absolute moral goodness. God's moral goodness has long been thought to be in some way the source or standard of what it is for human life to be moral. 
Clearly, given his absolute moral perfection, what God commands us to do must be what is morally right for us to do. But are these things morally right because God commands them? The dominant answer in religious thinking concerning God and morality is that what God commands is morally right independently of his commands. Now, I'm not quite sure that I'm ready to agree that this is the dominant answer in religious thinking, but in any case, the stage is set for the rejection of divine command ethics. Of course God's commands are not the basis of morality. If God only commands that which is moral, I mean, if it's already moral, then of course God's commands don't make things moral. The criterion of being moral is the very property that we were trying to account for by appealing to God's commands. If God is morally good, then divine command ethics is false. When theists who would otherwise want to say with me that God's commands are the basis of morality also grant that God's commands accord with morality and then use the idea of God having a morally good nature to explain why his commands accord with morality, a very bad move in my view, they're trying to satisfy a challenge. The challenge is that in order for God to have reasons for commanding as he does, thereby avoiding arbitrariness, those reasons must be moral reasons, or as Bill Craig says, a morally sufficient reason. And so the skeptical challenger quite understandably asks, well, how can God have moral reasons for God acting as God does without making morality independent of God? And so the apologist says in response that God's nature is moral. Now, I don't think there's any good reason to try to satisfy this demand because the demand is based on an error. Namely, the error of assuming that if God has reasons for commanding, then those reasons have to be moral reasons. Well, the divine command theorist may well claim that God would not command, say, the torture of children. But when you ask why not, there's no reason why we have to say, well, it's because God's nature is moral and that's why not. No, maybe the answer is, in fact, I'm pretty sure the answer is that God doesn't actually like the torture of children. God is loving. And God is powerless to change what he likes and doesn't like. These are things that are part of God's nature. Uh, philosopher Edward Wieringer noted that a divine command theorist might well believe that some features of God's character, for example, that he is loving, place constraints on what he commands. In fact, sorry, I misquoted. He says he is essentially loving. And the fact that God is essentially loving uh, placed constraints on what God will command. Now, none of these constraints are moral. They have nothing to do with God's or anyone else's obligations, except in the sense that they might become moral for us. They might become obligations for us if God commands us to emulate certain divine traits, as Christians believe that God does. The fact that there is no moral standard determining what God must command doesn't mean that the divine commands are arbitrary, if by arbitrary we mean without reasons. God does have reasons for commanding as he does. God loves us. God wants what's really good for us, and so on. God commands behavior within the constraints of his love, justice, and so on, things that are not moral in themselves. And so things become morally good because God commands them. And God commands them because God desires them since they satisfy God's preferences, but not for any moral reasons. This invites a question. Now, some people outside of philosophy say, well, this begs a question. No, 
it doesn't beg a question. It raises a question. It invites a question. The question is, so is God good? Let's move away from the problem of arbitrariness and back to the issue of God's goodness. If God is not morally good, can we then appeal to God's goodness at all to fend off objections about arbitrary or horrendous commands? Well, I say yes. Yes, we can say that God is good and we can make this appeal. Appeal. <laughs> appeal. God is essentially good. And God's nature is what gives rise to his will, just as my nature gives rise to mine. But having already said that God is not subject to moral standards, that God has no duties, and that God therefore does not command for moral reasons, can I say that God does what he does for reasons of goodness? Well, yes, I can. Because good isn't necessarily a moral term. We might exercise moral goodness by being good at performing our moral duties, but we might have other kinds of goodness as well. We might be good singers, good runners, good philosophers, or good exes, where an ex could be any number of things that a person can be. We don't see any problem in defining this kind of goodness without reference to God. The Bible lays down the challenge. The psalmist in Psalm 34 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. So we are given an expectation that God's traits, God's nature, if you like, will coincide with our existing notion of goodness. We will recognize God as good because by tasting and seeing, that is by experiencing some sort of relationship with God or maybe even an exposition of divine revelation about God, we will discover that God is good. That makes sense if and only if we know what it is to be good before we taste and see. And we do. We're already familiar with beauty, with excellence, and so on. If we understand God's goodness as non-moral goodness, that is, as the exemplification of something like beauty or excellence, there's no threat to God's role as the source of morality. There are certain things that we recognize as good by virtue of the fact that we are made in the way that we are made. Some things by their nature are conducive to happiness and flourishing. Things like love, kindness, fairness, justice, and so on. We call these things good. And by saying that God is good, we are saying that God's nature is to exemplify these things that fit into our category of good. Now, I try to avoid, well, I usually try to avoid the bandwagon fallacy of taking too much comfort in the fact that others agree with me, and therefore I'm probably right. But it's always nice to see that I'm not alone. I would start to worry if I was the only one who thought this way. Brian Davies, the eminent Thomistic philosopher, makes the same observation. He comments on the biblical material, and I quote, The Bible certainly says that God is righteous. So far as I can gather, however... It never conceives of God's righteousness along moral lines, by which I mean that it never takes God to be righteous because he does what is morally the right thing for him to do, as someone might commend me for doing what is, it is morally right for me to do. In the Old Testament, God's righteousness seems to consist in his acting in accordance with his covenant with the people of Israel, all the terms of which are drawn up by him. So it amounts to the notion that God can be relied on, relied upon, sorry, to do what he has said he will do with respect to Israel. 
Righteousness in this context clearly does not mean moral goodness which accords with the standards of goodness binding on all who seek to be morally good. An Old Testament text never suggests that God is good because he conforms to some code or other, which I take to mean that they never suggest that God is good as a moral sorry, as a good moral agent is good. End quote. We can also speak about a person being good to us in a non-moral way if we're careful. If we're sick and we're in need and someone provides for our well-being and care, then they're being good to us. Now I say we've got to be careful because these acts are also morally good. If God wants us to treat other people in this way, he wills it or commands it, as I think God actually does. But whether these acts are morally good or not, they're also good for us in the sense that they help us to flourish and to be happy. There's no threat here to the moral sovereignty of God in saying that we can think of this sort of non-moral goodness without reference to God's will. God's will that we do these things does not and cannot change what is and is not good in the non-moral sense. Now there's another sense in which God's will brought that about because it was you know God decided how to create the universe and us which affected what is good for us but that's a separate question. Failure to make these distinctions between rightness and goodness or stated differently between moral goodness and non-moral goodness lies at the heart of at least some criticisms of theologically grounded ethics. Not only have I avoided the independence problem, but the account of moral duty that I've discussed here and the distinctions that I've made mean that the existence of natural and non-moral goodness independent of God's commands doesn't pose a problem for the view that all moral facts have their basis in God's will. Maybe not appreciating the distinctions that I've made here, philosopher Eric Wielenberg critiques what I take to be a divine command theory of morality. He calls it the dependency thesis because it portrays morality as dependent on God's will or command. So he's talking about a causal version of the divine command theory, one that Philip Quinn, for example, held. Drawing on philosopher Ralph Cudworth, Wielenberg raises a very familiar objection to divine command ethics, namely the problem of arbitrariness that I mentioned earlier. The argument here is that if morality is based on God's will, then it would be completely arbitrary. God could command us to torture and pummel each other, and this would be okay. As Wielenberg puts it, this view implies, quote, that it could be morally permissible for one person gratuitously to pummel another, end quote. Now, according to Wielenberg, this is absurd. Notice that Wielenberg is referring, and correctly so, to the concept of being, quote, morally permissible. So the subject is moral duty, or morality, or ethics. The study of what we ought and ought not do. So he's saying this would not be um, morally impermissible. It wouldn't be prohibited. Now, just as well known as this objection is the reply to the objection, as also noted earlier, namely that God's commands are constrained by his character and so on. Now, Wielenberg is aware of this because he quotes from Edward Wiedinger from an article published in 1983, who, like other divine command theorists, explains that if God is essentially loving, then there do exist constraints on what he will and will not command. 
Quote, he would not command an action which, were it to be performed, would be a gratuitous pummeling of another human being. End quote. In other words, the fact that moral duties derive from God's will does not imply that God could in fact command atrocities which would thereby become morally required. But Wielenberg does not accept this response. Well, why not? Well, he's got two objections to it, but I'm going to focus on the second. His first objection is that Wellinger's defense does not show that God cannot command abominations. It merely presents us with a scenario uh, in which God would not command them. Wielenberg says this implies that if, per impossible, God were not loving, he could make it the case that it is obligatory for someone to inflict a gratuitous pummeling on another human being. Now, without going into too much depth, because I want to keep on on one subject here, um, and this would take us down the path of metaphysics and our basic doctrine of God, let me just say here that most theologians and Christian philosophers and non-Christian theistic philosophers do not think of God as having his traits accidentally or just incidentally. You know, it turned out this way, but it could have been otherwise. Instead, God has his nature, his traits, necessarily, and it is therefore necessarily the case that he would not command the kind of acts that Wiedinger refers to. As I say, I'm not going to go into the metaphysics of, of justifying that claim, uh, but this is how Christian theists, traditionally anyway, construe God. So that objection, that reply, uh, is going to fall on deaf ears. What I want to highlight is Wielenberg's second response. He says, and I quote, Second, notice that the dependency thesis implies that nothing distinct from God is intrinsically good or evil. The claim that the dependency thesis is necessarily true implies that it is impossible for anything distinct from God to be intrinsically good or evil. This is because intrinsic value is the value a thing has by virtue of its intrinsic nature. If an act of will on the part of God bestows value on something distinct from God, that value cannot be intrinsic. It will be value that the thing has in virtue of something distinct from itself. End quote. Here's where the water begins to get muddy. There's nothing actually wrong with what Wielenberg says here, provided he's being careful and consistent throughout. The dependency thesis, that is divine command ethics, is a theory of moral duty. This quotation from Wielenberg is only correct, therefore, if he is using the words good, evil, and value to refer strictly, to refer only to moral value in the sense of facts about moral duties. If that's what he means, then what he says here is quite unobjectionable. Sure, the dependency thesis just is the view that, independent of God's will, there are no objective moral values, that is, duty-related values, in the sense that we don't have any actual moral duties. If that's what he meant, then that quotation would not be an objection to the dependency thesis. It would just be a description. But, and here's where the wheels fall off the apple cart, Observe what Wielenberg says in the very next sentence, and I quote, I think this implication is problematic for the simple reason that some things distinct from God actually are intrinsically good, and some things actually are intrinsically evil. Pain, for example, seems to be an intrinsic evil. It is evil in and of itself. Its badness is part of its intrinsic nature and is not bestowed upon it from some external source. 
Yet, the theist who accepts the dependency thesis must reject this and maintain instead that pain is bad only because God made it so. End quote. This objection is apparently rather obvious to Wielenberg. He says that just as an epistemology leading to the absurd view that I do not have hands should be rejected, as Thomas Reed pointed out, and I quote, a metaphysics that leads to the conclusion that falling in love is not intrinsically good or that pain is not intrinsically evil should be rejected, end quote. However, I think this is just a really obvious case of equivocation. When... Wielenberg says that falling in love is intrinsically good, he surely does not mean that it is our moral duty to fall in love. Likewise, when he says that pain is intrinsically bad, it's crazy to think that he means that somehow it's morally wicked to be in pain. But we were supposed to be talking about ethics, remember? About the relationship between morality and God's will, with morality being dependent on God's will? But what he has to mean here is that there is some non-moral goodness involved in being in love and some non-moral badness involved in experiencing pain. Now, I'm pretty sure that any divine command theorist would agree with Wielenberg. There is some inherent uh, non-moral badness involved in being in pain. There is an obvious sense in which pain is bad for us and there's an obvious sense in which it is good to be in love as it provides us with certain goods. But none of this has got anything to do with morality. Therefore, the fact that goodness and badness of this sort might exist independent of God's commands doesn't present a problem for the dependency thesis, in much the same way that God deciding to command certain things because they are good does not. The distinction between moral and non-moral goodness also diminishes the force of another of Wielenberg's arguments. He recognizes the reality of moral facts. Torture is wrong, kindness is right, and so on. However, he also sees that you can't ground these facts in the material universe. They're not physical facts, if you like. Wielenberg's solution is non-naturalism. The idea that moral facts are like, well, kind of like platonic objects. They're just, they're there. They're these brute, non-physical states of affairs about what's right and wrong. You might think, and I would agree with you, by the way, that that's pretty weird. But, says Wielenberg, it's really no more weird than what theists believe. Observe, and I quote, The ethical shopping list of Adams, Craig, and Morland contains items like this. A. There is a being that is worthy of worship. B. If the good commands you to do something, then you are morally obligated to do it. And C. The better the character of the commander, the more reason there is to obey his or her commands. My ethical shopping list contains items like this. D. Pain is intrinsically bad. E. Inflicting pain just for fun is morally wrong. And F. It is, n- it is just to give people what they deserve. None of us can provide an external foundation for every item on our list. Each of our lists contains some brute ethical facts. So in other words, he's saying, look, if you think that my claims are just groundless ethical claims, well, even divine command theorists have got some of those too. No, I don't think so. Has he shown that this list of non-natural facts is no less weird than those posed by the theist? And that he's got a set of moral facts? Not at all. 
For this list of facts being compared fudges the distinction between moral facts, facts about duty, and facts about goodness in general. And in fact, some of these facts have nothing to do with either. God's being worthy of worship can have to do with excellence, beauty, and being our greatest good, rather than anything to do with duty. The statement that God's commands constitute moral obligation isn't a moral fact. It doesn't involve any specific duty. It's what we would call a meta-ethical fact. It tells us what the nature of moral facts is. And the fact that the better the character of the commander, the more reasons there are to obey their commands, is clearly not a moral fact. Because the kinds of extra reasons being referred to here are prudential reasons, rather than reasons of moral duty. Yes, moral obligation may arise arise through God's commands, but we may have plenty of non-moral reasons to obey those commands, since we know that God is wise, loving, and all-knowing. So, the theistic beliefs that Wielenberg refers to are not brute, non-natural moral facts at all. Actually, I think he fudges the list of things that he believes too. Yes, being in pain is bad, but it's not morally bad. Because it's, it's not like a sin or a moral offense to be in pain. It's also a bit of an empty tautology to say that it's just to give people what they deserve. Because to deserve something is just to say that you... It's, is just to say that it's just that you should receive it. However, take his example about torture. You know, it's wrong to torture people just for fun. That's a brute moral fact, which is supposed to be a non-natural thing unrelated to any divine person. But this just is a weird thing to believe in, not paralleled by anything that the Christian theist believes in. This is a free-floating, non-personal obligation, when usually obligations are things that exist between persons. So Wielenberg hasn't shown that theists believe in things just as odd as he does, because he has muddled the distinction between the non-moral facts that theists believe in and the moral facts that he believes in. So let me sum up by drawing together the threads of this reasonably short analysis. Firstly, some theists, I've quoted only a couple, but there are, there are quite a few of them, have sought to defend a divine command theory of ethics by saying that God has a moral nature. Therefore, his commands are not arbitrary because God's got morally sufficient reasons for commanding as he does due to his own moral goodness. Now, in a number of cases that I know of, this is probably just verbal confusion more than anything else. And maybe if the author's attention was drawn to these cases, they would concede that things should have been said differently so that those who reject theologically grounded ethics would not have this foothold from which to strike. But it does strike me as an important lapse nonetheless. I've argued that the problems associated with this way of fending off the arbitrariness objection vanish once we construe God's nature in purely non-moral terms, saying instead that all morality, with no exceptions, is subsequent to divine commands. And as such, defenders of divine command ethics should construe God's goodness this way and expunge moral language from their description of divine goodness. Stated bluntly, theists should not attribute moral goodness to God if they're going to say that God is the source of morality. 
I should think instead of God as non-morally good. Secondly, I have noted that there are at least some objections to divine command ethics from the outside, if you like, that initially appear to be persuasive only if this distinction between moral and non-moral goodness is overlooked or fudged. It's true, as Wielenberg notes, that it seems absurd to us that all things bad for us would have been good for us if God were to declare or command otherwise. But the reason that this isn't a problem is that not only is moral goodness subsequent to God's will, as, as I have said earlier, but divine commands are constitutive or causal, that distinction doesn't matter here, only of moral goodness and not every other kind of goodness as well. So that concludes my argument. That is why I think that some apologists for divine command ethics need to change the way they talk about it. And that is why I think some skeptical challenges to divine command ethics simply fail. And with that, one of the shortest episodes of Say Hello to My Little Friend on record draws to a close. Not the shortest, but one of them. In the top five or bottom five, depending on how you look at it. Episodes, I will admit, have been pretty far between lately. And of course, that will only make sense to you if you're listening to them as they come out. If you're listening a few years down the track, you'll be like, what? I downloaded them all at the same time. Um, but at, at the moment, live, uh, they are pretty far between. But it's not at all because of a lack of material. It's just a matter of time and circumstance, working out of town being a major factor. But I'm not going to bore you with excuses now. The point is, there are more episodes planned, and you will eventually get to hear them. As always, I'm open to suggestions for people uh, to contact me through the blog and propose episode topics if you have any such propositions to make. And as always, I make absolutely no guarantees, stated or implied. But for now, I bid you adieu, and we will meet again in episode 47. Until then, this is Glenn Peoples, closing the curtains on another episode of... Say hello to my little friend! <laughs>